What goes up? Boy, Marie! Boy, Marie! The Strictly American. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning in to episode 163 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. I think this is a really special episode, which calls for a special format, which means it's going to be a little on the long-winded side. You've been warned. But here's why. 100 years ago tomorrow, February 12, 1924, in Aeolian Hall, New York City, Paul Whiteman's band played the first public performance of Rhapsody in Blue with composer George Gershwin at the piano. It was orchestrated by Whiteman's arranger, Ferde Grofe. Now, this album is one of at least three versions my dad owned of the famous song. He has a 1939 version from Whiteman that was released on 12-inch 78 RPM discs from the Decca record label. The Rhapsody is broken down into two sides. And then there's Gershwin's solo piano first recorded on piano roll, then transferred to the LP format in 1958. Check out episode three. Then there's the one you are about to hear, which was recorded in 1958 to celebrate Whiteman's 50 years in music. So, get ready to hear an iconic American tune that is celebrating a century of popularity in volume 163, 100 Years of Rhapsody. But, but, but not yet. I'm not just going to jump into one of the grandest pieces of music without a little build-up. So let's start with three of the songs from side two of this record.
the Paul Whiteman Orchestra with When Day is Done, written by Buddy De Silva. Okay, why this record for this episode? Well, because I have so enjoyed listening to the different versions of Rhapsody in Blue over the years, and I thought I would take this opportunity to say happy 100th birthday to one of the most recognizable melodies in all of music. Rhapsody in Blue is a 1924 musical composition written by George Gershwin for solo piano and jazz band, which combines elements of classical music with jazz-influenced effects. Commissioned by band leader Paul Whiteman, the work was to be premiered in a concert titled An Experiment in Modern Music on February 12, 1924 in Aeolian Hall, New York City. Whiteman's band would perform the Rhapsody with Gershwin playing the piano. With only five weeks remaining until the premiere, after Gershwin hurriedly set about composing the work because he had found out about it at a late date, he later claimed that while on a train journey to Boston, the thematic seeds for Rhapsody in Blue began to germinate in his mind. He told biographer Isaac Goldberg in 1931, I was on the train with its steely rhythms, its rattle bang, that is so often so stimulating to a composer. I frequently hear music in the very heart of the noise, and there I suddenly heard and even saw on paper the complete construction of the Rhapsody from beginning to end. No new themes came to me, but I worked on the thematic material already in my mind and tried to conceive the composition as a whole. I heard it as a sort of musical kaleidoscope of America, of our vast melting pot, of our unduplicated national pep, of our metropolitan madness. By the time I reached Boston, I had a definite plot of the piece, as distinguished from its actual substance." Gershwin began composing on January 7th, as dated on the original manuscript for two pianos. With the debut of Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin inaugurated a new era in America's musical history. He established his reputation as one of the eminent composers of the jazz age, and his composition eventually became one of the most popular of all concert works. In the American Heritage magazine, Frederick D. Schwartz posits that the famous opening clarinet glissando has become as instantly recognizable to concert audiences as the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. No, but not yet. Soon, I promise.
There's Limehouse Blues with music by Philip Bram. And uh, speaking of Beethoven's Fifth, at the moment this episode drops, my girlfriend and I will be at Severance Hall watching the Cleveland Orchestra perform that symphony. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, Rhapsody in Blue. On the Grand Award label, number GA33502, it's a vinyl LP compilation mono format. was released in 1958. Its genre is jazz, and its style is big band. The cover on this album is a little different, as the front has a felt finish to it. And we will hear four of the six songs from this record. Now, the liner notes are lengthy, and I'll be using some later, so I'll just let you hear a couple of the important paragraphs. This is the music of America. This is the music that really thrills all of us. It's the music of Paul Whiteman, the music of the songs and the rhapsody he helped to make famous, and of the musicians who performed it, and to whom Paul Whiteman helped bring fame. Paul Whiteman and his music are an American institution, important, dynamic, productive, and a musical symbol of the ever-growing land to which they have contributed so much and which remains eternally richer and grateful. The music in this album is music which has been recorded before, recorded by Whiteman and by many of the same musicians who play it now, who play it now as they never have played it before. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. $11 for a high, $2.01 for the low, for a $6.67 average and a $6.99 median. It was last sold on March 20th, 2023 for £1.59, or that $2.01 low. Now, my dad's record is in fair to poor condition. There's actually a bad skip within the Rhapsody that I couldn't correct on the turntable itself, but I was able to edit out and it didn't affect the song at all as the entire song was there. I just had a two-second loop going on in the original digitized recording. The cover is in poor condition, although that felt finish is still pretty nice. It's the edges that are showing bad wear and one bad tear along the top seam. The word posted is stamped on the back cover, but there is no green magic marker, and his address label is also not on the front cover. So I think I will value my dad's vinyl at 75 cents. Now, since I'm only playing four songs, I need to also tell you about who exactly the conductor is of this great music. His name has been indelibly attached to this great piece for 100 years. Paul Whiteman was born March 28, 1890 in Denver, Colorado. He came from a musical family. His father, Wilberforce, James Whiteman, was the supervisor of music for the Denver Public Schools, a position he held for 50 years, and his mother, Alfreda, was a former opera singer. His father insisted that Paul learn an instrument, preferably the violin, but the young man chose the viola. Whiteman's skill at the viola resulted in a place in the Denver Symphony Orchestra by 1907, joining the San Francisco Symphony in 1914. In 1918, Whiteman conducted a 12-piece U.S. Navy band, the Mare Island Naval Training Camp Symphony Orchestra. After World War I, he formed the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. That year, he led a popular dance band. 
1920, he moved with his band to New York City, where they began recording for the Victor Talking Machine Company. The popularity of these records led to national fame. Whiteman became the most popular band director of that decade. In a time when most dance bands consisted of six to ten men, Whiteman directed a more imposing group that numbered as many as 35 musicians. By 1922, Whiteman already controlled some 28 ensembles on the East Coast and was earning over a million dollars a year. While most jazz musicians and fans consider improvisation to be essential to the musical style, Whiteman thought the genre could be improved by orchestrating the best of it with formal written arrangements. In his autobiography, Duke Ellington declared, quote, Paul Whiteman was known as the king of jazz, and no one as yet has come near carrying that title with more certainty and dignity, unquote. In the early 1960s, Whiteman played in Las Vegas before retiring. Paul Whiteman died of a heart attack on December 29, 1967, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. He was 77. Okay, not quite yet. <laughs> we have one more before we get to the main attraction. And I love this version of this next song as the violin takes over the part you're used to hearing coming from the piano.
Autumn Leaves with music by Joseph Kozma. Time now for this episode's interesting side note. And it has to do with the man who took Gershwin's notes and created the score that the musicians played from. Rhapsody in Blue's Genesis was also much more collaborative than is traditional for a piece of classical music. In keeping with the practice of Broadway composers of the time, Gershwin wrote the piece in short score form for two pianos, one representing the soloist and the other the band. It was then arranged by Ferde Grofe, a composer and orchestrator who often made arrangements for Paul Whiteman's unique ensemble. Grofe played a key role in the Rhapsody's meteoric success, and scholars have contended that Grofe's arrangements of the Rhapsody secured its place in American culture. Gershwin's biographer Isaac Goldberg noted in 1931 that Grofe played a crucial role in the premiere's triumph. Quote, In the heat of the occasion, the contribution of Ferdy Grofe, the arranger on the Whiteman staff who had scored the Rhapsody in 10 days, was overlooked or ignored. It is true that an appreciable part of the scoring had been indicated by Gershwin. Nevertheless, the contribution of Grofe was of prime importance, not only to the composition, but to the jazz scoring of the immediate future. Unquote. Grofe hastily arranged the famous 1924 score to take full advantage of the Whiteman Orchestra's particular strengths. He developed his orchestration for solo piano and Whiteman's 23 musicians. Musicologists largely ignored this original arrangement with its unique instrumental requirements until its revival and reconstructions beginning in the mid-1980s, owing to the popularity and serviceability of the later scorings. After the 1924 premiere, Grofe revised the score and made new orchestrations in 1926 and 1942, each time for larger orchestras. Since the mid-20th century, the 1942 arrangement became a staple of the concert repertoire until 1976, when Michael Tilson Thomas recorded the original jazz band version for the first time, employing Gershwin's actual 1925 piano role with a full jazz orchestra. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I had so much fun looking further into this piece of music, and I hope you were enlightened with some of the information I shared along with the way I presented it. Now, there were several notable recordings of the Rhapsody. On June 10, 1924, Gershwin and Whiteman's orchestra created an acoustic recording running 8 minutes and 59 seconds and issued by the Victor Talking Machine Company. Love the little laughter from the clarinet. This is the original recording of Gershwin's masterpiece. It is an acoustic recording, not electric one. This record was released soon after the piece was first performed and was later replaced by a much more common 
electrically recorded one after the invention of the microphone the following year. However, when the recordings were released, they still had to be cut down in order to fit on two sides of a 78 RPM disc, which is why they are only about nine minutes in length. A year later, Gershwin recorded his performance on a 1925 piano roll for a two-piano version. And you can hear a recording of that piano roll in Volume 3, Original Performance, Rhapsody in Blue. Later, on April 21, 1927, he made an electrical recording with Whiteman's orchestra, running nine minutes and one second and again recorded by Victor. Nathaniel Shilkret purportedly conducted the electrical recording after a dispute between Gershwin and Whiteman. length limitations of early recording formats, the first complete and unabridged recording of Gershwin's composition did not occur until the Great Depression. In July 1935, after several years of performing the Rhapsody for sold-out audiences in Massachusetts, conductor Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops Orchestra recorded the first unabridged version, nearly 14 minutes in length, for RCA Victor. For this first unabridged recording, Fiedler discarded Faraday Grofe's original 1924 arrangement and adapted the piece for a conventional symphony. At the time, contemporary critics praised Fiedler for jettisoning the so-called jazzy sentimentality of Grofe's earlier arrangement and adding a more symphonic richness and authority. During the final months of World War II, amid the box office success of the Gershwin biographical film Rhapsody in Blue from 1945, pianist Oscar Levant recorded the now iconic composition with Eugene Ormandy's Philadelphia Orchestra on August 21, 1945. Levant had been an intimate friend of the deceased composer, and he sought to replicate Gershwin's idiomatic playing style in his performance.
Levant's Homage received rapturous reviews and became one of the best-selling record albums of the year. As a result of Levant's recording and the 1945 biographical film about Gershwin's life, a Gershwin revival ensued. And now, on to the version you are about to hear. From the liner notes. Never before has the Rhapsody been recorded with such amazing clarity, so that, as Whiteman says, you feel as if you are sitting in the band itself and hearing every instrument. It is also, according to Pops, a nickname he picked up, the most authentic version of the piece since his composer recorded it with the Whiteman Band more than 30 years ago. That's why I wanted to record it, Whiteman explains. After listening to all the recordings of the Rhapsody, we felt we had strayed a great deal from its original concept. Now, even though I admire many of these recordings, I thought we'd go back to the original Gershwin recording. In recent years, there have been some brilliant renditions, but they've shown off the pianist more than they have the Rhapsody. Personally, I am very proud of this version of the Rhapsody in Blue. Thank you. 
Whiteman Orchestra with Eugene Weed on piano performing George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, a song that is 100 years old. Even with all the critics of the score, it had its famous champions. In an article in the Atlantic Monthly in 1955, Leonard Bernstein, who admitted that he adored the piece, stated, Rhapsody in Blue is not a real composition in the sense that whatever happens in it must seem inevitable or even pretty inevitable. You can cut out parts of it without affecting the whole in any way except to make it shorter. You can remove any of those stuck-together sections, and the piece still goes on as bravely as before. You can even interchange these sections with one another and no harm done. You can make cuts within a section, or add new cadenzas, or play it with any combination of instruments or on the piano alone. It can be a 5-minute piece, or a 6-minute piece, or a 12-minute piece. And in fact, all these things are being done to it every day. It's still the Rhapsody in Blue. A hundred years after the debut of Gershwin's Rhapsody in 1924, tens of thousands of orchestras as well as solo pianists have recorded and performed the piece, both abridged and unabridged, and you can find many of those performances on YouTube. And there you have selections from Paul Whiteman's 50th anniversary album. So thanks for tuning into Volume 163, 100 Years of Rhapsody, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches and pops, and my girlfriend for Volume 164, A Faithful Valentine. Until then, 
go with the flow, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>